Good morning, family. Good to see you guys. Greetings in the name of the King. Um, before we kick it off, I just want to, uh, to, I think it was last week, I kind of uh, outed myself on what my idol, one of my idols was, uh, if you guys were here. And I just want to tell you, God's been working on me this week. Those prayers have been working. I've been praying along with you. And uh, I had uh, two different uh, situations just this weekend uh, where I got to uh, disappoint some people. And I stepped into it. And uh, they're people that I love. They're people I care about. I really respect these people's opinion and what they think. And I knew that if I was quiet and just kind of went along, I'd get an attaboy. And if I spoke my thought, that I'd probably experience their disappointment. And I decided to step into that. And the victory that I experienced was awesome. So God is changing me. And if he can change me, he can change you. And I want more of that victory and I want that for you in our church. So keep praying this prayer, reveal, remove, replace, right? Um, well, today, we're going to come to the story of Ehud. And uh, I, I want to say just a couple of things before we get into the actual the reading of the, the passage, okay? Uh, first of all, Judges is a book of the Bible that's written in a particular genre or style called historical narrative. It's historical in that these people are real and that the events really happened in real places. It's narrative in that the author has an agenda as he records or writes about the real event that happened. So he's very selective in what he records and how he records it. So there's certain things that he wants us as the reader to focus on. There's other things he doesn't want us to really pay much attention to. He's not merely recording facts of an event. He's also interpreting the meaning of the event for us. Does this make sense? And so he's magnifying certain aspects. He's foregrounding certain things, and he's going to background other things that aren't that important to his message. This is not a new phenomenon if you think about it. Just like journalists today, the writer is directing us to see the event from his point of view so that we don't miss his message. He doesn't want us to miss his point. Second thing is this, there's subgenres even within historical narrative, and the author is going to make use of all these tools in his tool bag. Puns, that's like playing on people's names. Irony, even satire, he's going to use this. And it's all to help us see his point that he's trying to get across in this event. So if this passage, if this story that Joe's about to read was a play that we were going to go see, or if it was like a movie we were all watching on the screen, we'd be watching what we might call today a dark comedy, okay? So there's like some really weird, bad, terrible, maybe gross things that happen, and we know we're not supposed to giggle about it, but we find ourselves finding it funny. It's a dark comedy. That's what we're watching because King Eglon is going to be the butt of a joke that he doesn't even know he's in until it's too late. So it's a dark comedy. Does that make sense? So with all that in mind, let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered himself the Ammonites and the Amicalites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Psalms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised them up and delivered Ehud, a son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute to him, to Eglon, the king of Moab. 
And Ehud himself, for himself, a sword, made himself a sword with two edges, a cubic in length, and he bound it to his right thigh under his clothing, clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a message, secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all of his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And as he rose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrusted it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chambers were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited until they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the root chamber, they took the key and opened it, and there laid their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they were delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hills of Ephraim. When the peoples of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader, and he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the forts of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Joe. Let's pray, family. Most holy God, we love you. We've come to worship you and to be changed and shaped more and more into the image of Christ. And we pray that you would help that happen through your word. Help me speak boldly, confidently, helpfully, so that we might be shaped into the image of Christ. Set us free, and Lord, dispel the lie of the enemy that Christianity brings slavery. You are a liberator, Jesus. So please reveal the idols that we secretly worship. Help us name them. Please remove them from our heart, and please replace it with an affection for Jesus. Do all these things in his powerful name. Amen. Amen. All of us have certain sins that get the best of us. The Bible sometimes calls us besetting sins. They're just kind of particular sins for us that get the best of us. Unlike other sins, we feel powerless to resist their temptations when they come calling. We fall for their promises over and over, and oh my gosh, I thought I saw this coming and I'm doing it again. And when we do, we tend to fall under their spell. They almost have like this kind of magic 
over us. Now, when that happens, there is a real hopelessness that can descend on us. Do you know what I'm talking about? There's a real hopelessness that can kind of creep into our mind. It feels like we'll be under the power of that particular sin for the rest of our life. So why bother fighting it? Just go with the flow. No matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, that particular sin seems to get the best of us, and we end up serving it again and again and again. There can seem to us like there is no way that the situation can possibly change. But what we find in this amazing passage today is that God gives people like you, like me, real hope through a surprising hero. So I want you to hear that, that word of good news right off the bat. Today, I want to talk about the hero that we didn't see coming. God's surprising hero, how we are to respond to him. Who he is, what he does, and how we are to respond to him. And, and just to start it off, surprisingly, God's hero is for people who have lost hope of being free. God's hero, surprisingly, is for people who have lost hope of being free. Let's go to the text, verse 14 and 15. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. And the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So he, an individual, represents the whole people through this giving of this tribute. The Bible says that Israel served King Eglon 18 years. They did not resist him. They did not fight against him or his wishes in any way. They served him, it plainly says. They did whatever the king commanded them to do. They obeyed whatever he said for 18 years. That's what it means to serve him. And then here we see in verse 15 that we learn that the people of God sent him a tribute. And this is most likely some uh, gold and silver, uh, but also probably uh, uh, agricultural produce or animals from the land. They're an agricultural society, the Israelites were. A tribute was a gift that was given to the ruling king or the overlord that has come in, and it carried a very symbolic message to the people who were under the power of that overlord. We visibly acknowledge that you're the king over us. We acknowledge in a way that we can see and feel you're the Lord over us. You rule over this land, we don't. It's the equivalent of an overlord saying, who's your daddy? In case you forget. And they say, you're our daddy. With each tribute they sent, God's people got weaker and weaker, and the overlord gets stronger and stronger. Remember what we talked about last week? He's plundering them. He is systematically plundering them both financially, oh, and psychologically. They're doubly slaves. They're slaves twice over. And to make matters worse, guys, Israel has brought this affliction upon themselves, right? They're doing this to themselves. They are getting exactly what they deserve for abandoning God, their true king. Because he told them this is what was going to happen. 
They deserve this. So get this. When Israel sends this tribute, they're essentially admitting that they've lost hope of ever being free again. It's, it's Pharaoh all over because they know how to live that life. When they give this tribute, they're giving up. You understand what I'm saying? Are you, are you hearing the story with me? And yet, get this, in the midst of, of, of conceding defeat to the enemy, in the very midst of being plundered by an evil tyrant, God decides to raise up a hero for them. Unbeknownst to them, working in the background where they can't see or perceive, God has chosen to make a way out of no way to save his people. Can you relate to this? Am I reading your mail this morning? Can you relate to this story at at any level? I mean, maybe you, maybe you are under the power of a particular sin this morning. I'm so glad you're here at Crossway. But maybe you are in the grip of pride. And it just rises up in you in every situation. Maybe you're in the grip of lust. Maybe you're in the chains of pornography. Or maybe it's greed. Maybe you're in the grip of of the love of money. And that's what's driving your decisions and your schedule. Maybe it's the love of power or the love of personal independence. I do what I want, when I want, how I want. Thank you very much. But maybe for you, you're serving the idol of family. Families become the God that runs your life. Maybe it's the idol of freedom from commitment. I don't make commitments to a church. I don't make commitments to a spouse. I don't make commitments to anybody because I got to keep my options open. Maybe for you it's the idol of your car or house or maybe it's just the idol of numbing out because I can't wait till five o'clock because this world's too rough and the stress is too much. I don't know what it is, but maybe... That's where you're putting your affection and your hope and your trust when you get a free moment. Maybe you've tried to fight those idols with no results, so now you know what? You just serve them when they call. They go, come here, boy. And you sit. Okay. I'm so tired fighting you. You quickly just give it a tribute of obedience. Will you leave me alone now? You give it a tribute of obedience, even though you know it's just going to make you weaker and you know it's just going to make you more miserable. It'll feel good for a minute and then it'll make you feel awful later. And maybe you are so beat down by the idols that you willingly serve that you've given up hope of ever being free. This is just who I am. This is just who I am. And this is just the way it is because I've tried and it doesn't work. I mean, you've already served them for two years, for crying out loud, or nine years, or 18 years. So what difference does it make, right? You looked at all the possible escape routes, and they're all blocked off. But listen, family, God wants you to know that he's raised up a hero to rescue you. And today's the day of salvation. God's hero, don't miss this, is specifically for people who have given up hope of ever being free. Isn't that wonderful news? God's hero is for people that don't have a way out. 
God's hero is for people who have run out of options, they've run out of strength, they've run out of road. They just flat out out. That's who he's for. So who is this hero? Well, God's hero is a surprising choice. Probably not what you thought. God's hero is a surprising choice. Look back at verse 15 for just a second with me. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Now the author's telling us something by, by putting these details in here. Ehud is from the tribe of Benjamin. Now what does that matter? This is where we're getting into the puns, right? The play on words. This is the smallest tribe in Israel not the largest. So he's got a knock against him. Also, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, they were the first to not drive out all the Jebusites. They're the first one to partially obey God. They're part of the problem. <laughs> they're part of the reason they're even here. So that's another knock he's got, ag- got against him. And let's not forget, at the very end of Judges, the last four or five chapters of Judges, which is just, man, that's really bleak, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin is almost entirely annihilated by the other tribes of Israel because they commit an unconscionable crime against a woman. Can I, as you're a reader, especially if you're an Israelite reading this, you get to this part, you've got to be saying, can a hero really come from Benjamin? Can anything good come out of Benjamin? Really? Ehud is from the wrong tribe to ever be a hero for God's people. But not only that, it says that he's left-handed. The name Benjamin literally means son of my right hand. Isn't that interesting? This should make a perceptive reader actually kind of laugh when you read that. That's, that's, that's not how it works. The right hand, guys, is the place of honor. Right? Come and sit at my right hand, right? Could I sit at your right hand, Lord? That's the place of honor, That's what it means to be the son of my right hand. I'm proud of you. And get this, it's also the hand of military power. Like God rescues his people in the Exodus by the power of what? His right arm. The power of his right hand. That's where the firepower is, right? It's in the right hand. But surprise, Ehud is left-handed. Wrong tribe, wrong hand. What a hero. Literally, this part, this verse reads, his right hand is shut up. He can't use his left arm. He can't lose, use his right hand. It just, it's just there. That, that's the hand you pull the sword out. It takes two hands to do a sword, right? Two hands for a bow and arrow, right? It's military power. He's not, he can't use it. We don't know why, whether it's a deformity or an accident or a disease or who knows. But he, he cannot use the right hand, the hand of military power. I like how Matthew Henry uh, puts this. He says, God chose a left-handed man to be the man of his right hand. Surprisingly, God uses what looks like a small, weak, non-threatening, unimpressive resume of a man to rescue his people from their enemies. Get this, all by himself. Isn't that awesome? Don't miss this, guys. Ehud is supposed to point us beyond himself to the bigger hero who is Jesus Christ. 
Just as God chose Ehud to rescue Israel from the tyrannical king, God chose Christ to rescue all people from a more powerful and more insidious tyrants of idolatry and Satan himself. Because Satan's the one who's behind all of this. He's the God behind all these gods that they're worshiping in Judges. Like Ehud, Jesus came from a hometown with a bad reputation, right? Can anything good come out of Nazareth, really, the Messiah? Remember that, John? Yeah. Like Ehud, Jesus appears too weak, too unimpressive of a resume to be a savior for God's people. Son of a carpenter, we know Mary grew up here. No way. Like Ehud, Jesus faces the enemy alone. And he dethrones him in undisputed fashion. But unlike Ehud, Jesus does not save people through deception or violence or by escaping death. Rather, Jesus saves us by peacefully surrendering himself to a humiliating death. A very gross death and rising again. Now, that's a surprising way of bringing liberation and salvation to God's people, isn't it? Didn't see that one coming. Jesus, listen, Jesus is the only Savior in your fight against sins. Did you hear me? Jesus is your only Savior in your fight against sins. Please, oh please, do not overlook Jesus because he appears to be the wrong man for the job to deliver you. Please, don't look past him for someone else or something else to rescue you. He is God's chosen right-hand man. Put your trust in him. Look to him and not another. So what does this hero do? Well, surprisingly, God's hero puts our enemies to open shame. Surprisingly, God's hero puts our enemies to open shame. So here's how the story goes. Ehud gets a private audience with the tyrant Eglon because he plays on his sense of pride and arrogance by claiming that he's a secret message. Oh, and it's a secret message from God. He doesn't say which God. He just says God. And Eglon's like, oh, a message from God or the gods. Okay, for me. Then for some unknown reason, Eglon sends all of his bodyguards and all of his servants out of the room so he can be alone with his enemy. This is a buffoonery move. Like, I don't understand why he does this. This smart guy gets really stupid at a critical moment in his life. And then Ehud takes the opportunity to kill tyrant Eglon and escape out the back door, but not before first locking the front door. And then we read these wonderful words in Judges 3, 24 and 25. It says, well, when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, well, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. Why did they think that? They smelled something. Verse 25, and they waited till they were embarrassed. It's got embarrassing at some point. 
But when he still did not open the door of the roof chamber, they took a key and they opened it, and there lay their Lord, dead on the floor. The author of Judges, get this. This is, this is why I was thinking I was reading this. Hmm. The author of Judges speeds through 18 years of suffering and slavery in a sentence. And he speeds through the defeat of the Moabites in just a couple of sentences at the end. But he slows way, way down when Ehud kills Eglon. I mean, we get, it, it's like blow by blow color commentary here, right? We get every gory sight and smell. And I'm thinking, and maybe you're thinking this, is he just trying to shock us? Is, that's why, is that why he's doing it? I mean, he devotes most of the ink of the story to this part. So is he just trying to shock us? Or could there be some other theological statement he's trying to make here? I mean, did that wonderful phrase, and the dung came out, really need to be included in the canon of Scripture? I mean, do you ever think about that? Like, do you think the scribes, as they're copying this for hundreds of years, they get to this sentence, and they're like, mm, I'm going to hit the delete key on that. It won't make a big difference. You know, like, you, I think they wrestle with that. Maybe we'll make an adjustment. But it's there. I mean, was this preserved just to make little elementary boys giggle when their Sunday school teacher reads this sentence? No. No. Here's what's happening. We're getting a picture of how God sees his enemies and what he will do in the end to them, all of them. God thinks all their power and all their threats and all their planning to rule the world is funny. He thinks it's downright funny. They think they're brilliant leaders. They think they're military geniuses. They think that they're opponents that all the gods should tremble of, tremble in front of. They think they're, they're the kind of opponent that every person in the world should fear and quake and give tribute to. But to God, they're vulnerable. To God, they're kind of gullible. They're unclean. And in the end, God dismisses all their threats as a joke. It's a joke to him. It's Psalm chapter 2 played out in real life. Uh, I like Gene Hackman movies a lot. I think he's a great actor. Uh, in almost, I'm trying to think, in almost all of Gene Hackman's movies, there comes a point in the film, there comes a point in the story where there's an antagonist that is just railing against his character, whatever that character is. They curse at him. They threaten. They're like volume. They're really yelling loud. They, they're accusing him of crimes. They're accusing him of misdemeanors. They go into like really great detail of how they're going to make his life just miserable when they get free or when they get a chance, right? In all of his movies. And instead, the audience is waiting for him at this point when they've finally done their little monologue of what they're going to do to him. The audience is like waiting with bated breath to see like what's his character going to do. And we're all expecting that he's just going to come back just as hard and just as loud and just as scary. But instead, Gene Hackman's character looks at his enemy and he just laughs in response like he's heard a really funny joke. He's like, <laughs> go check it out. His dismissive laugh is basically saying, you know what, I don't take you serious at all. I heard everything you said, and I don't take it serious at all. You're a joke to me. You're not a threat to me. And that's why I'm laughing at you. 
God is pulling a Gene Hackman in Judges chapter 3, guys. That's what's going on. Does this make sense? Do, do, you, know, do you know what the name Eglon means? It, it literally means bull calf, like male calf, like a little, little, little calf. Not, not with horns and fearsome, he's a little calf. And the Bible says that he was a very fat man, a fat calf. He got fat off the lives of those he abused and afflicted for 18 years. He saw himself as a military genius, but really this wicked tyrant is nothing more than a fatted calf in the hands of Almighty God. He's about to have a party at his expense. God's not scared. And you and I should not be either. That's the point. Eglon saw himself as, saw himself as sitting in the lap of luxury. I mean, to have a bathroom on your roof back in those days and have servants carry your excrement down the stairs because you're just too lazy to do it yourself. I mean, that's just the very definition of opulence, right? Amen? He's surrounded by power. He's surrounded by strength. He's in absolutely the most secure position he could possibly be in at this point. All because of the idols. Look, he's looking at his power and strength and all that the idols had done for him. He's relaxing on his roof. He's enjoying the shade and the breeze. He's looking over all that he thinks he controls because he controls a lot. His kingdom. But in the end, their Lord lay dead on the floor. Listen, guys, God does not merely dispose of the enemies of his people. He puts them to open shame. They don't call him Eglon the Great, do they? No, he doesn't get that name. That's why Eglon dies in the way that he does. When God rescues his people, he reverses the current order of things. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. The powerful king at the beginning of the story is reduced to a smelly, humiliating pile on the floor by the end of the story. God didn't merely win a victory over Eglon. He brought dignity back to his people who had themselves been humiliated and tormented by him for 18 years. What he meted out was meted out back to him, running over. Does this make sense? He exposed their weakness, the weakness of their tormentor. That's how he brought the dignity back to their people. Guess what? Now they laugh at their former slave master. That's him? That was the guy we were supposed to be afraid of? We're not afraid of him. Guys, that's how you and I are supposed to be of our slave master, of our tyrants, of the idols, when they come calling. <laughs> are you, I'm not listening to you. I'm not obeying you. Because you don't scare me and you don't run me. Does this make sense? When you and I succumb to our idols and perform sinful deeds for them, it doesn't just put us into spiritual bondage, does it? As bad as that is, but there's more, right? It also humiliates us when we perform those deeds, when we obey their siren voice. They steal our dignity and they saddle us with shame, don't they? And they use that shame to keep us submissive, to keep us in chains. Idols blackmail us. If I could put a fine point on it, that's what they do. That's how they keep you enslaved. They blackmail you and me. 
Idols degrade us. They say they're going to give pleasure and they really take your dignity from you. Can the church say amen? Is this landing on anybody today? They humiliate us. They steal our dignity. They saddle us with shame to keep us submissive. They, they, they degrade us with embarrassing labels. Drunk. Prostitute. Stripper. Adulterer. Dropout. Couldn't finish it. Unreliable. Deadbeat dad. Weak will. <coughs> And they threaten to expose us if we ever try to get help. Oh, you don't want to go to, you don't want to get away from me because I'll tell everybody what you did. I'll tell everybody what you did, right? Don't they tell that to you and me? They shame us to keep us submissive to them and in chains. We need to get this part of the story. It's important. What you and I need is a hero that not only saves us, like takes us away from them, and saves us from the power of our idols, but also strips them of the power to ever shame us again in the future. That's the kind of, that's what it means to be more than conquerors. Conqueror means I just, I, I just took care of the, the, of the idol. But more than conqueror means, and he can never come back. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's what we need. That's exactly what, we, what God did for us in Christ, by the way. Look what Jesus Christ says in Mark chapter 3, verse 27. He says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds up the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And that's exactly what Jesus did when he came. He said, The kingdom's come, the kingdom's come, I'm plundering his kingdom. I'm plundering Satan's kingdom right now. It's a preview of what I'm going to do all over the place one day. Colossians 2.14 says it in a different way. It says, cancel the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This God set aside, nailing it to the cross. This was his method of rescue, the cross and the resurrection. Then God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to what? Open shame through a shameful mechanism. Isn't that interesting? The cross. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. This is not an incidental detail. This is part of God's plan of how he sets you and I free from our idols. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he paid for every sin we've ever done. And everyone goes, we not our hang. Uh-huh, good. Right, I subscribe to that belief. But here's the deal. The sins that Satan uses to accuse us before God have been stripped of their power to shame us now. Why? Because they've all been punished in Christ our hero. Listen, when Jesus died and rose again, he bound up the strong man. Satan's a strong man. Sin is a strong man. That's his tools that he uses to keep us in chains. And why? So he could plunder his household. And that plundering has started now. And it's going on till eternity. Satan cannot threaten you and I anymore with God's judgment and, the, and his death over our sins. Because Christ has died for our sins, we no longer have to fear them being made public and put on the internet in a Google Doc or a video. Whoa. We don't. Why? because it will not change our standing before God who holds the power of judgment and death in his hands, right? 
Now, that might change your job. That might change your marriage. That might change, we might get the horizontal consequence. But guess what? The, the one that matters the most, he loves us. He will never send us out. And that's the one that matters the most. It will not change our standing. So Satan, expose it, because I'm safe. I'm as secure, and I'm not afraid. I can laugh at what you might try to do. Because Christ rose from death, it means this. To never die again, it means this. We are sure that we will not miss out on any pleasures in this life by saying no to our idols. And that's important. Our idols can lie to us all day long. You gotta sample this. You gotta go to this. You gotta try this. Because you might you only live once. See, you only li- you gotta kick it all in right now because you only live once. And man, why are you gonna obey Jesus? He's keeping you from the fun. He's keeping you from a good time. So have a good time now. No, 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 no. The resurrection means we live forever. Psalm 1711. In your right hand is pleasures forevermore. You see where I'm going with this? You don't miss out on anything good by saying no now to your idols. Because your hero ensures you have pleasures forever and ever. Is this not a weapon? This is great. This is what it means for us, brothers and sisters. We can break free from serving our idols. We can change because Christ has publicly dethroned Satan of two of his most potent weapons against us. The fear of shame and the fear of loss. Gone. That's God's hero for us. Now, how do we respond to him? Well, we need to follow our hero into battle. We need to follow our hero into the battle. Verse 28, and then he, Ehud, he said to all of them, follow after me. Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. Follow after me, God's given your enemies into your hands. So they went down after him, they seized the fords of the Jordan, basically, if you saw it on a map, they, they cut off their escape route. They took possession of the fords. They did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. Ehud was able to lead Israel into victory because he had already won the decisive battle himself against Eglon previously in the throne room. Remember that? That's why he was able to lead them to victory, guys. Don't miss this point. Ehud took out the strong man, so now his whole kingdom can be plundered easily, efficiently, Without their leader enthroned and commanding the situation, the Moabites who looked, uh, once looked invincible, they looked like a well-oiled machine, they're, in, they're imbeciles. They're weak. They're scared all of a sudden. They don't know where to go and what to do because their leader's gone, right? I want you to notice this also. Notice how Eglon's followers share in the defeat of their leader. He represents them. But also notice this. Ehud's followers share in their leader's victory. Isn't that cool? Since Christ, our hero, has already won the decisive battle, we can fight to take back what the enemy has stolen with confidence, guys. That's the punchline of this. With, with assurance 
of victory. We must follow Christ our leader into battle to completely clear our heart and clear our homes and clear our lives of the idols that still remain, the 10,000 Moabites, right? Will these battles require sacrifice on our part? Yes. We're going to have to say some things that we like. Nope, not doing that anymore. I'm giving it up. I'm doing this now. Yeah. Does this mean that we must make use of Christ's weapons in order to see success? Yes. We're going to have to pray and read scripture and be part of a church and worship and sing. And yeah, we're going to have to make use of Christ's weapons to see success. Yes. Does this mean that we must fight these battles together instead of alone? Yeah, absolutely. But brothers and sisters, we fight against sin and idolatry from a place of assurance. We're not fighting for victory, we're fighting from a place of victory. The decisive blow has been struck by Christ through the resurrection. The dagger has gone into the enemy and it stayed in. We will share in his victory. Good news, brothers and sisters, today we can have victory over our most tyrannical idol. Today we can gain ground that we have lost. Today we can be transformed for God's glory as we put our trust in Christ, our hero's work. So I want to send you out with this today. Follow your leader into the battles against idols that you'll face this week. Follow your leader into the battles against idols that you're going to face this week. Go, fight, win in the name of Jesus. Let's pray, church. Jesus, Jesus, we love you. Remove the idols. Help us name them so we can see them. Remove the idols from our heart. Replace them with Jesus Christ. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for being our hero. Thank you for the decisive battle that was fought on the hill of Calvary and in the empty tomb. You are a king who beat our enemy at his own games using his own weapons against him. <laughs> that's so funny to me. That's, that's great. Lord God, I pray that today for our people, I pray for this flock, that when their idols come calling, that instead of being scared of what they might do to them, that they'll laugh. Like you laugh at them. You laugh at those tyrants. That they wouldn't obey because they are not scared, because their hero has, has won victory. And I pray today that as they clean house and they clean heart and they clean home, because there will be a fight, that they'll fight with courage. They'll fight bravery because we'll be fighting with assurance. Take back ground in Jesus' name. Amen.